the words verbatim that I said to my team, which is literally verbatim. I, I always said one or two clicks past reality, not so far, but just a couple so that we know we're in a heightened, slightly surrealistic world enough. So it's deliberate. You know, I think like the term camp gets thrown around, but can't be, you know, camp can be, you know, the point is it's deliberate. It's intentional. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Josh Greenbaum's new comedy, Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. The film tells the story of best friends Barb and Star, who leave their small Midwestern town for the first time to vacation in Vista Del Mar, Florida, and soon find themselves tangled up in adventure, love, and a villain's evil plot to murder the entire town. In addition to Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, Mr. Greenbaum's other directorial credits include episodes of the series Bless This Mess, Fresh Off the Boat, and New Girl, the television documentary series Behind the Mask, and the documentary feature Becoming Bond. Mr. Greenbaum spoke with fellow director Guillermo del Toro about filming Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar in front of a virtual audience. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hello, everybody. And uh, here we are, Guillermo and Josh. Welcome, Josh, to this uh, little conversation about your fabulous and insane movie. Thanks, Guillermo. Uh, no, no, thank you. I, I was, um, uh, before we get to the movie, which is the main conversation, and I have so much to ask you about, uh, the great surprise is your first movie. That's uh, stylistically very difficult to achieve what you did, thematically very different, Tonally, incredibly difficult. Tonally, really, really difficult. Because you uh, you balance, when, when somebody says, oh, well, zany is easy. Zany is incredibly difficult to sustain and shape over a feature. It's, it may be easy in a short, where you have to pay off three, four minutes, but you chose that tone. You chose every, every single thing you chose made it hard. And it's your first movie. So I want to know, I know your brother, so I know you come from a very masochistic family, but <laughs> I would like very much to, for you to tell us where you come from and how did you get to this first feature? Sure. Um, well, thank you very much, and thanks for doing this. Um, well, <clears throat> my the short version of my background is uh, I have worked in documentary a lot, um, and I have worked in sort of narrative shorts, as you said, short films. Um, but yeah, I, this is my first narrative feature and it, and it was, it was, I've, I've sort of been sitting here for a good five, 10 years looking for that first uh, narrative story to tell, wanting it to be unique and loud and different and something that I feel like I would have a stamp on it. Um, and, and, and this came about um, in, in a really wonderful organic way. Uh, and of course I couldn't say no to it, but um yeah, I, mean, I don't want to go too far back, but the, the, the origin of how I came to the film is I, um, I made a documentary two films ago called Becoming Bond, which was about the story of George Lazenby, who some may know as the one-time James Bond. And uh, he has an amazing story. And I took his story, he told it to me on camera, and then I reenacted about 75% of it. Um, in the reenactments, what I was excited by was they were very comedic in nature, most of them. I mean, there's certainly some emotional stuff as well, but it's a very funny, wild tale. And the reason I'm bringing that up is um, I had a screening of that, whatever it was now, two or three years, three years ago, maybe more, 
uh, and the producer of Barb and Star, Jessica Elbaum, one of the producers, um, came to that screening and she brought Kristen Wiig with her. And I didn't know that. And I was there. I think my brother was there, uh, another green bomb that you know. And um, after the screening of this film, Kristen walked up to me and said, wow, I love this. I would love to work together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's grab a lunch. And I, you know, sort of had this knee buckling moment because I'm such a huge fan of hers. Not unlike when you tweeted about our movie, I had a similar like, oh, my God, I was so excited. Uh, I can't tell you. So um, but anyway, I, I sort of wasn't sure if that was real, if it was going to become anything. And a couple of days later, we had lunch and she pitched me what you saw as Barb and Star, although a much longer. It was like a two and a half hour lunch. She pitched the full movie, acting out all the characters. And, uh, you know, I sort of said to her, if the script is anything like what you just pitched, I would, you know, I'm so excited and so in. So that's that's the origin of how I came to it. The screenplay already existed? Yes, the screenplay had existed. She and Annie wrote it, um, but she, I, I don't know if she just wanted, I think like with this movie, she wanted me to know what I was about to read. <laughs> um, I think we had the same feeling when we submitted to like Jamie Dornan for Edgar there's that fear of like, is, you know, is, is, is this going to be, does this need any prefacing? Um, but yeah, it was, it was written, uh, an early draft of it. Um, fantastic choice, by the way. I'll oh, thank fantastic in a minute, but yeah. So the screenplay is that how much uh, did you have to tweak it once it came to you? Um, not a lot. It's, I'm sure the normal version, the normal answer is just paring it down, paring it down. Like Kristen and Annie have these, I've often described them as like these, you know, like children. And, and I mean that in the best way, you know, and an idea will happen and they get inspired and it's like, well, let's run and do this thing. Let's run and do this joke or this storyline. And so it had a lot of what you see in the final film, which is just this, you know, sort of crazy turning left, turning right when you're least expecting it. Um, but, you know, I just kind of worked with them for, I can't remember what it was, a few months <clears throat> to maybe a little longer to pare the script down, focus it. Um, And a big part of it for me to, to one of your early questions about tone was was figuring out how to anchor the film, um, because it is, you know, it does go kind of all over the place in such a wonderful way. But I think even as you said, even in the zaniest films, you need something connected to the ground, whatever that might be. I think that was that was a lot of the work that uh, we did together. And um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I wish I could tell you exactly. I'm sure it changed a good amount, but so much of what's still, so much of what I love about the film right now existed in those early drafts. Yeah, but uh, look, uh, you can have the partiture to the fifth uh, symphony and you still have to execute it and direct it. And what I think is there's a lot of, uh, there's one element of tone that exists in the dramaturgy of a movie, the rhythm of the dialogue, the pitch of the characters uh, and all of that. But then you can grab exactly the same screenplay and execute it tonally, audiovisually, and rhythmically, like uh, Napoleon Dynamite. You know, you can decide you're going to ground it in the most indie reality uh, with certain flourishes, certain rhythms. But you anchor it in that reality. You went, uh, you went for a very ambitious directorial visual, audiovisual tone. It's almost like. Uh, in order for these characters to live, you elevated the, the everything is heightened. The color palette, the texture of palette, the, the, obviously the tone of the delivery and the pitch and the rhythm, but everything is uh, one or two notches above real, but not more than that because then the tone 
is too dangerous. You're not going into Tim Burton territory and Edward Scissorhands. You're going. You're keeping it. You're keeping it floating between real and not because in this terrarium, in this living zoological space that you create for characters, uh, Kristen Wiig has to live. Annie has to live, but also an albino villain with a super villain uh, sidekick that is a a kid with a with a paper route. Uh, and, and and a forlorn uh, love uh, anguished uh, Jamie Dorman that just wants to to formally engage to someone. The, all those elements. If you have an audiovisual tone that is more sedate, they will not root. So it's extremely difficult, extremely wise. Is there was there a model you took? Is there any inspiration you? You said, I'm going to do it like this, or what guided you in deciding as director? Yeah. Visually, that tone. Um, I laughed out loud a second ago because you said the words verbatim that I said to my team, which is literally verbatim. I, I always said one or two clicks past reality, not, not so far, but just a couple so that we know we're in a heightened, slightly surrealistic world enough. So it's deliberate. You know, I think like the term camp gets thrown around, but can't be, you know, camp can be, you know, the point is it's deliberate. It's intentional. Um, so but, yeah, but let, me, let me interrupt you. Because yeah. there, there is a thing that can happen. Okay. Yeah. It didn't happen. When camp is, uh, is a position where you are above the material, looking down on it, it dies. Right. It becomes satirical and it suffocates and asphyxiates the life of the thing. You're not above the material. You're getting high on your own supply. <laughs> you, you, you are the, the, the main consumer of it. And that has a sincerity and yeah. a purity that, that is, uh, camp goes, gets thrown around too casually, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, I appreciate that. And you're absolutely right. Um, but absolutely, there was an element of creating our own world and that, that, you know, that has some fantastical element to it. Certainly not as fantastical as a wonderful like Pan's Labyrinth, but still we're creating, we have to create our own world of where, as you said, all these characters can coexist. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's not, it's still surprising, but not world breaking that a crab starts talking or a giant musical number happens. Um, but it, it, it's able to exist in that world. So. But if, um, but if one of them doesn't happen, the other one doesn't happen. This is very important. Yeah, uh, because and when it happened, it cannot happen in town. It's too early for the musical number. But when they arrive there, we want a musical number as an yeah. audience. Right? Yeah. We want to see the change from the drab reality, yes. everyday mundane world, to to this fantastic escape. You know, which is Vista del Mar. Yeah. Well, one. You know, it's funny you brought up the earlier question about script changes. One of the things we changed early on was. That opening sequence where Yo-Yo's on his bike throwing the newspapers, the very early drafts um, as he was going, and they were great jokes, but it was like, you know, he throws his newspaper and first it lands on some, uh, you know, an old lady baking a pie who waves to him. The next time it lands, it's, uh, you know, a little a squirrel waves. And you're like, huh. Then there's a family of bears who are out throwing pitch and catch. Very funny, you know, and then there was like an old timey stagecoach, you know, very funny. But to your point, I felt like it wasn't quite welcoming you into the film in a way of saying, like, let me ground you first 
and then slowly keep surprising you. And again, I don't want to just say me, it's a conversation with Chris and Annie, the brilliant screenwriters behind it. But it was that's an important choice, I think, of how we first kick things off. But yeah, but you you can have a tone in in, in planning and a tone in execution. Yeah. You know, look, that's a very wise decision because you open all already colorful, you open already in a in a very lively way. But then you know everything seems to be heightened, but it's one notch. Then immediately the next notch happens when he gets retinal scanned <laughs> into right. an elevator into a secret layer. Right. And then you go okay. By the way, it happens early enough. Yes. Which is wise because then you say, all right. Yeah. Uh, fasten your seatbelts because anything goes now. That's right. And then you yeah. go sedate a little bit more sedate again. Yeah. So that was an interesting decision editorially. Um, I remember actually we, I had the pleasure of sitting with you at, at uh, an event and I, I was in the middle of editing and I asked for your editing advice. And I remember. And you said, you know, several wise things but one of the things you said was just mix it all up take your first scene put it in the middle or take your middle scene and put it first and just just breathe life and try things out and to that end we certainly looked at and explored well what if we start with barb and star to you know and and but immediately i realized like no we have to at least start you in this world that it's heading toward and give you a taste of it to know that because i think otherwise you really get too sideswiped you're like oh this is this is bridesmaids too with older ladies. And now wait, why is there an albino villain? Yes, yes. Um, and so I think order, which I would also say is a big part of documentary filmmaking. When do I tell you what I want to tell you in what order? Um, that, that's a good discipline you already have. Yeah, because it, it's a big difference. You know, if I tell you this bit of information earlier, you're going to judge your character one way. If I move it later, you have a totally different experience. Um, yeah, you know, in, in a way, a documentary is like a trial where you where you sit down as a juror and in comes the victim's family and you go, oh, my God. And then in comes the, the father of the accused and you go, oh, my God, that poor, you know, you're, you're swayed again and again. And that's not very different from comedy in which I think comedy is a hostage situation. I sit down on the audience and say, okay, make me laugh. Yeah. Come on, you're so smart. It's a very antagonistic genre. <laughs> then, then comes the pitch in which you say, okay, here's me. I'm going to make you laugh. And if you don't, the bond is broken. It's broken immediately. Immediately. And I think uh, there is, that's when the, the tone, uh, we have the tone pitch, the frequency, the velocity because of the jokes. Uh, when people say, like, you can have a movie that is three hours long and feels like an hour and a half. And I, I have, and many of us have witnessed movies that are 85 and feel like three hours long. And when I talk about editing, I always say, is not the velocity of the event, is the, the, number, of, the number of steps that you need to get to, get to, to, get to the next event. Mm -hmm. and, and that's in comedy with the jokes. If you're too fast, your top secret airplane, and you have to commit to that joke rhythm and pay it off at the end, but your rhythm fluctuates nicely. Did you, what were the models for the comedy for you? Um, I mean, you sort of, you, 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 you hit them. Um, certainly what, you know, in that first conversation with Kristen, she referenced what, again, in your tweet blew my mind because she literally said it's Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion meets airplane. And top which, secret for me. <laughs> and top secret, which 
I was like, this is so exciting. Those are two of my favorite films. At the same time, I'm a little semi-panicked as a director of like, I don't know what that means. Like where, where does one is a grounded semi-earnest comedy uh, and the other is, you know, satirical spoof and, and figuring out how those can kind of coexist, I think was my immediate sort of question and, and challenge of tone. Um, but those were kind of the reference points, you know, comedy is, is so subjective. I think what was, which was so great was Kristen and Annie, and I were all in the exact same wavelength. And that's, that was the core creative team, uh, along with our, our producers, Margo Hand and Jessica Elbaum. But, you know, if the three of us or five of us were laughing, that was it, it was like, okay, we all, we have to trust that, you know, and of course, later on, you try to show it to audiences and get feedback, but, um, it's just, you know, I think co comedy to an extent is, is, you know, is your gut and you, you have to kind of trust it and go with it. Um, and there's times, you know, I think with this film, there was times when we knew the joke was how long we're staying in the bit, right? You know, we're doing a two and a half minute musical number with Jamie Dornan where he's singing his feelings. And part of the fun of that is just how long we're taking to, to tell you this one tiny story piece. Yeah. But then you can't do that five more times, you know, it's sort of, you know, and there was other bits that I loved that we, we cut out while they were so funny. It's just like, you can't play that sort of same. You, you, you cut out, how many did you cut out? I would say, you know, a good of that style of joke, maybe four or five. There was but one of my favorite jokes is when the, when the ladies find out they're, they're losing their job at Jennifer convertibles. Um, the boss You know, we had this funny idea on set that the boss, after he tells them the store's closing and they can't process it, their whole world is being so shaken up. He gets up as they're asking him questions like, so tomorrow we don't go in. I don't understand. He literally gets up, walks into the background of the scene, fills up his coffee. They're still talking, going, so is tomorrow is it's not the lights won't be on. Will we not be? He comes all the way back and sits down. And, you know, it's just one of those beats that was so funny. But, you know, you have to kill your darlings in that sense that it's like, oh, we, we do play that kind of joke later on. And you, you know, do, when, you do. I mean, the wisdom of editing is recognizing that when I'm, do I have this beat already later, sooner, earlier? Yeah. And say, I mean, uh, I, in the editing room the other day, we took out one of my favorite shots of the movie I just shot. I, I shot that we were high five. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, but that's 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 uh, the decision making because uh, again, uh, when they when they're talking about that, you get the beats, you get the characters, you get their obliviousness. You can stretch it, uh, but is it worth it? You know. Right. That's right. In that in that that wisdom is not common uh, on a first feature. So you uh, of the shorts you did. Of the, you have, uh, you can handle comedy so well. So, were you an, a student of comedy as a genre, or are you a student of comedy as a genre? Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's my. Those are those are my favorite films. I grew up on them. Um, in a weird way, when I look back at my favorite films as as a child, this is sort of an amalgam of them because I I grew up on John Hughes, um, and those were sort of my my favorites. But at the same time my dad introduced me to Monty Python and I discovered, you know, Airplane and, and Top Secret and, uh, and Mel Brooks and these sort of like more spoof satirical things. And, um, but yeah, I, I, you know, 
it's it's in a way it's always funny to me that you know that I, I do feel as though comedy you know in in terms of like the I don't know I guess the the critical or the uh, the critical eye of the filmmaking community or the uh, sort of award side I'm like I think it's really hard to pull off and I don't mean that just because I make comedies but I also think of it as actors I, I often find that you know it's interesting to see how many great um, comedic actors can then turn dramatic because I think the best ones are doing both. They're, they're doing the dramatic work, but they're, they're adding that comedic element. Yes. And um, you know, you saw with, with um, there's no comedy without depth. Yeah, exactly. There's and there's and no fine comedy without. Depth. Yeah. There's an, by the way, there's an interesting reference I remember making when we were working on the script together, which is I actually brought up a movie dumb and dumber uh, to Kristen and Annie because it's a very broad, silly, funny comedy, but there's a scene in it that's worth revisiting, which is uh, uh, Jim Carrey breaking down emotionally and saying, I'm tired of being a nobody. You know, I'm tired of having nobody. And it's this very emotional beat that you kind of forget in this very silly, fun comedy. But it's that moment that you could, first of all, you can see his dramatic acting chops right there, but you also all of a sudden feel for this guy as, as silly as the movie is and you're anchored and now you can go on all these hilarious journeys with him. And to me, that was the same thing. And we worked really hard on the bedroom scene, which is in, in Barb and star, which is where they kind of reveal that maybe they're not that happy with their lives and, and this feeling that they've lost as they put it, their shimmer, um, which I think is universal for people in their middle age years. But I think for anybody, um, losing that sense of purpose, that sense of confidence. And so that was a really critical scene in my mind in, in terms of grounding the film enough that I care about these characters, I relate to them, and I will go on this journey with them as crazy as it will soon get. Well, it's, 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 I think that uh, my opinion, and it's only my opinion, is not a universal truth, is that it is, it is much easier for a comedic actor that ha that is handling incredible precision and timing and delivery and they are in uh, great comedic actors uh are using all the tools in the box for mm -hmm. sure and and uh it's easier for a great comedic actor to transition to drama than it is for a dramatic actor to find the incredibly difficult tempo of comedy and the delivery unless he's playing a straight man you know mm -hmm. uh, uh, i think but you inherit a tradition that comes all the way, if you go back, to Laurel and Hardy, you know? Mm -hmm. And now that that goes through Romy and Michelle, uh, as you discussed, which is, you know, is, is very much like Candide, the Voltaire idea of somebody that is so oblivious to reality and so such a, a fool in almost the tarot card sense that he's going to go through life without staining. One big difference for me, and this is, I mean, I think they both are fantastic, uh, the, the main characters. But one big difference is when Jamie Dornan comes in and the sexual element appears in the movie, it's incredibly, an incredibly liberating uh, element. It's, it's not judgmental. It doesn't judge the characters. The characters don't judge themselves. They go into uh, an or or orgy of uh, the senses. And there is no uh, hangover about it. There's no um, uh, filter to talk about uh, physical needs. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I can recognize other things. I can recognize the sort of 
when uh, when Jamie sings is a little bit like that mid-level euphoria, a huge euphoria about a mid-level <laughs> achievement, like Fright of the Concourse. You know, it's like the most beautiful girl in the room, you know, it's, it's not about something. Like, but this I don't recognize. This is such a finding, I think, of you and the stars, which are the screenwriters. And it's an element that you have to be fearless, but also an incredibly uh, forgiving and secure human being to execute. Tell me about this element, if you can, the discussions you had with them about it. Yeah, and about, sorry, specifically the the sort of like the sexual awakening element of it or the... Everything. Everything, Everything. yeah. Most of these comedies either, you know, if you go to the raunchy side, yeah, they get into uh, into an exploitative side, which can sure. be very funny, yeah. or they, they, they are virginal. Yeah. And I think there's nothing in between. Yeah. This movie achieves that in between beautifully. So let's Thank talk you. about that. Yeah. Um, well, I think the basis for all of it was, and this happened with my very early conversations with Jamie Dornan and casting him and then was just this idea of grounding it as, as again, it's as silly as it, as the movie gets, um, what they want, who they are is very real. And so, you know, Jamie's character, Edgar desperately wants love. He wants to, you know, to feel seen. Um, and so I think there's an innocence uh, on his end, right. In terms of this sexual awakening and this, and the, and this experience that he has with Barb and Star. Um, and similarly, I think Barb and Star, and they they sort of say it the next morning, after uh, as you said, an orgy of the senses of their their night. But it, you know, it is in many ways. Cool drink. By the way, one of my uh, side side tangent, but one of the, my favorite moments after this film has come out. Um, it's both really funny and kind of emotional. But my um, my uncle, my brother, and my uncle is is uh, currently dying of brain cancer, and he saw the film and he loved it and he shared with me and his wife took a video of him while he was watching the film and he was tears falling from laughter and he couldn't quite get out the sentence. And then he finally was like, Oh, a naked sandwich. And he was crying and laughing about a naked sandwich. And it was like, I don't know. I'm sure you experienced this. Like I, I, you kind of forget why you make things like you just like, you know, big picture meaning like I'm excited to make something it's all about executing it. Is the right length? Is the jokes right? And, and for the first time, I had this moment of sort of sitting back and seeing what like a really silly comedy can do to lift someone's spirits. But it, it also was so funny because here's my uncle laughing and saying naked sandwich, which I'd never heard that term, but it's basically what it is in the film. Um, but there, there, there's also a, a beauty, a liberating look. We exist in a moment right now in which we, if we can allow ourselves to be human, Mm-hmm. is the greatest thing we can do for the future. If we allow ourselves to have dimensions that are not normally uh, addressed, you know, and this is a dimension these two characters have in a most uh, moving way. You, we talk about the innocence. I think there is innocence, there's a purity. You know, there's a purity to the movie. There's a, and, and there's a humanism to it which Renoir has, very different, but Renoir has it in his films. There is nothing that is human that is alien to the characters. Mm -hmm. The villain is ultimately fragile. 
is ultimately somebody that would like to be loved, blah, blah, blah. But these, these two women are, are have that dimension that are, is fantastic, that is, um, that, that is not, it doesn't have to be, uh, is, is played in earnest in, in, mm-hmm. in its power. And it, it's so fantastic to me to see that because uh, that is an element that is, and not only works as a comedy, but as a, as a very liberating character trait. Because you don't expect it from where they work, their talking club, and, and, and they remain very forgiving. Oh, you know, when they find out what each other did behind each other's back. Well, yeah, it, not only, uh, yeah. And one of my favorite scenes in the film is when they, it, it is when they're lying about having what they did that night and they both saw a turtle. And, and you repeat the you repeat the same shot. <laughs> yeah. oh, the double the double day, yeah. But when they finally re- lie to each other and say, "I saw a turtle," oh, I was in the bath with the turtle. What's so sweet in that moment, and Kristen and Annie pull off so incredibly because it's very difficult, is they lie. But then, as the other one listens, they totally believe each other, right? Yeah. They, they say, "You you walked a turtle home," and there's that sort of innocence. And I think, you know, I think that's that comes from Kristen and Annie, um, their friendship, you know, that, that they've had for 20 plus years, but also their writing. I mean, part of what I responded to so much when I first read it and when I met Kristen and ultimately Annie was that's sort of who they are as well. And, and I have, I share that same spirit feeling spiritually. Um, it's not very cynical, the voice behind it, which a lot of comedies are, um, you know, there's not as much of an ax to grind. Um, and I think the prospect at the end of the film uh, of defeating the villain via kindness, sweetness, and friendship was, was very sweet. I hadn't really seen that before. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like some skill they gathered in act two that enabled them to defeat the villain. I mean, you know, I think act two reminded them of what they had early on, which is this beautiful relationship and friendship. Um, you know, and of course, there's this absurd, wonderful moment where, you know, they're saved by Trish, the water spirit, yes, of which is, you know, which is really obviously out of nowhere. But in, in many ways, it's not. It's, you know, as, as if you want to sort of analyze it, it's like, well, that is the embodiment, the representation of their friendship. You know, they sat on a five hour flight and talked nonstop about this fictional character so much that in the reality of our movie, it, it created her. <laughs> You know, or she was real. But that—that that, that is, I think, one of the things I loved about the movie. The uh, we enter from our world and we see them, and the comedy in the beginning is uh, malleable, but the tone is alien. We're getting used to it, and then at the end, the world belongs to them. They shape it. They really shape. I mean, it's very easy to talk about empowerment and uh, this and that, and then and then figures of empowerment can very dangerously get idealized, mm-hmm. you know? And these are, for me, these are very powerful uh, characters because they have uh, traits, defects, they lie, they do this, they do that, but they are, they almost conjure the world the way they need it. And, and the world bends yeah. to their needs. This, I tell you, the, um, when, when we're talking about comedians, when you see the skeleton twins, yeah, you know, and uh, you realize that the depth uh, that is needed to execute comedy, mm-hmm. and especially in this in this uh, movie, uh, if you don't have that friendship, if you don't believe that they pitch their day every day, <laughs> they start pitching the world to each other, and then 
almost like 10 year olds and, yeah. and the other one, oh yeah you know and that's how they sustain their life it's so beautiful yeah well i i i thank you for saying that and and i i've always loved and been drawn to friendship stories and you know i've not stopped to analyze it but i think to an extent they're love stories, right? They're sort of platonic love stories. And in some ways, they can be more powerful. Or no, sometimes that. with a naked sandwich. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Occasional naked sandwich. With an occasional naked sandwich, which makes it less platonic momentarily. Um, no, but there's something that about that. And, and I think as we as we get older, you know, your friends become your surrogate family. And there's also something so beautifully unconditional about when, you know, I've had the benefit of having some really close friends in my life and it, it's unconditional, you know, whereas even in romantic relationships, there's always maybe that lingering feeling of, you know, if my looks change, will they still like me? If I don't succeed in my job, will they still love me? And really pure friendships don't have that. They just like you for who you are and your soul. And I think at its core, that was, you know, what, what was so sort of attractive about this project and about these characters. And um, we sort of always knew, I felt from the directing standpoint, that if you love these two women, if, if we can get you, Kristen, Annie, myself, the team to, to care and love them, the movie will work, right? There's a lot of other questions we have to answer, but that's their, sort of the, their central relationship. And of course their performances and they're, and they're so incredible. Um, and I, I think Jamie also is a, a, an incredible revelation for me. I mean, I've always admired him. I love him in the fall. He pulled yeah. uh, he pulled such a difficult part on, in yeah. the fall. And uh, every time I've I've seen him, uh, he has either this uh, almost very intense persona, you know. And then when you see him in his in his musical number, it's just. Uh, is absolutely disarming. Yeah. And well, he's he's he he's still taking that intensity of you know of being a serial killer. Now he's just climbing a palm tree like a cat, but with yes. the same intensity. Um, no, Jamie was Jamie. We you know I felt so lucky to have gotten Jamie. Um, you know I I always knew I think we all always knew ideally we would try to cast someone who is not a comedy actor in that role just because it always is kind of exciting and it feels like a discovery. And, you know, what the role really required was, was a commitment to the dramatic in a way. And then the circumstances, you know, will make you funny in a way. And so it was, you know, when I first met uh, Jamie and I got on a Zoom just like this and we started talking and I could tell he instantly got the script, loved it. And, you know, we talked a lot early on about like, is this guy an idiot? Is he dumb? Is that the comedy? It's like, no. He's not. He's 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 in love with someone who doesn't love him back and he's blind to it. And there's in that sort of desperation, there's a lot of comedy because, you know, I think so much of what's funny is because it's relatable. And I think we all probably have unfortunately been there before where we're desperate in love with someone. But he I think he is in love with love. He's in love with love. Absolutely. I think think the beautiful thing and being official, Guillermo, being official. That's the official love. But, but, but this is what, where if you revert this movie and you go to 1940s, 1950s, and you have two guys and they met a girl that is in love with love, well, we've seen it. Yeah. And, and, and the guys end up having romantic or if it's 60s and 70s, even physical relations and they, an error, comedy of errors and all that. But reverting it, it not only makes it new, it completely changes the polarity 
of this whole thing. And and it's a it's a cleanser. It's a spiritual cleanser to I think we hunger, I mean I hunger to meet good people. I mm -hmm. I like meeting terrible people in cinema and in TV and in drama. Love it. But occasionally when you meet good people, yeah, uh, it's so absolutely uh, refreshing. It's an, an amuse-bouche. You know, you go, oh, yeah. thank you. I'm prepared for the main course of life again. <laughs> it, it, it's it's, it's uh, healing, even. Yeah. And I think he's, um, he's the object of desire. Yeah. And his baggage did, obviously it worked for him, but did you discuss his baggage uh, with the uh, shades of gray and all Shade, that? Uh, I mean, a little bit, but I mean, only to the extent that... Um, Really, only to the extent that, well, he has a lot of, you know, strong opinionated fans or, you know, fervent fans, I should say. And so our real only question, which we both chuckled at, was, well, what will those fans think of this movie? Um, because, they, you know, I think there is a good chunk of his fans, not all of them, who I think love him from that specific series of films. Um, but no, we didn't actually discuss it much. We discussed his character and you know, and just that idea of committing and he, and he came in and, and did that. Um, and yeah, I, I think like you said, it's like from a writing perspective and a char character perspective, it's, it is refreshing to sort of see he's a sweet, innocent man who, as you said, loves love. And by the way, it makes, it, it actually makes that role quite difficult because he has to actually jump through a lot of ho hoops dramatically, right? He's in love with one woman, then he meets another, but he's torn but he still has this plan to carry out, you know, for our plot, but also so for, for our, you know, for his own, he's caught in between two women and then he's back and forth. And I love watching his performance. And, you know, there's so many scenes I remember shooting with him where Barb and Star are blah, 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 blah. You know, that double date sequence, he has two words in, you know, seven minutes. But if you rewatch it, watch his performance. I mean, it's, it's incredible to watch actors sometimes when they're not, speaking and seeing what their reactions are and their little looks. And, and that can really, by the way, as you know, can also really sell and ground a, a slightly heightened character or joke, you know, yeah, um, when, you, yeah. when, when you did the, the musical numbers, they are also very different between each other. Uh, did you study any particular musical directors or Donen or uh, who did you? Who did I you mean, if, if it's not, yeah, if it's not clear, I've been, you know, I've been sort of yearning to do a Busby Berkeley type of musical number for a long time. So that was the, the, the intro hotel musical was that was the inspiration. Certainly, once we got our location, and we had this beautiful big atrium, you know, we got about 100 dancers and worked with our incredible, you know, uh, costume designer, Tracy Fields, who, you know, outfitted them along with our production designer, Steve Sacklett, who did such a beautiful job on the film. And so that was kind of the inspiration behind that, uh, that first musical number. And then of course, our second one, J the Jamie Dornan, um, was a bit more of a, I would say, I would reference like music videos um, from, you know, when I was like a teenager, <laughs> um, you know, that kind of like style. Uh, a little bit of a, of a of cheesiness to it, you know, it's the split screen where he's jumping both directions and, but as you said, like celebrating I love, it. Lo-fi. The lo-fi, exactly. A little bit, by the way, speaking of lo-fi, a lot of discussions over how will we get the seagulls, you know, and what are we going to do about the seagulls on the tire and the seagulls in the sand? And ultimately, in sort of a wonderfully appropriate way, we wound up getting two fake seagulls. <laughs> 
That's all we could get. That's and it. I, I was in the sand, like laying and just wiggling him a little bit, you know, for that shot. And then we, you know, added a little eye blink and it was like in, in its low finest, as, as you said, it's, it's perfect. You know, it's sort of exactly how you want speaking, to do it. Speaking of animated animals, we cannot let go this discussion <laughs> without addressing the breakout star of the film, Morgan Freeman. <laughs> With a D, right? With a D, with a D, yes. So how the hell did you guys come up with Morgan Freeman? I mean, it's, it's one of the most amazing discoveries. It's one of my favorites. That was, you know, there's a couple things that did not change much at all from the draft one that I ever read. That was one of them. And um, What was really fun about it, I mean, what I, I always like to shoot things practically if I wherever I can. So actually in this film, we did all the stunts were all practical. Literally, you know, there's a couple like VFX things to help, but like the culottes, we actually strung, but you know, Kristen and Annie, you know, when you have willing actors too, it's like, let's go for it. They went out in the ocean on the jet ski, we shot it in the ocean. But so for the crab, obviously early discussions were like, well, we'll just do CG. They, you know, you can do CG animals so well. And I, I really was hoping we didn't have to. So we started to do some research and I found a couple guys in England who have crab puppets <laughs> and we flew them in. You, we dug a four foot hole in the beach, put a little piece of plywood over and a guy, a puppeteer was under the, you know, four feet down on the beach controlling. Well, he's, con so I had the, the, the recording of the Morgan Freeman dialogue that played out of a speaker And Kristen got to sit next to this crab and act opposite him in real time. And there was two guys, one guy controlling, like, I think it was the claws, maybe, and another guy controlling the eyes and the mouth. And they were this incredible, you know, and I was, you know, I'm sure you've obviously experienced this. You're giving direction to the puppeteers, which is really fun. I, I also been in the hole. <laughs> Have you? <laughs> yes, when I, when I started, but keep going. I felt so bad because, by the way, you know, I, 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 we shot in, in Mexico mm -hmm. uh, with incredible crews there and Churubusco Studios in Mexico City and then in Cancun. It was 95 degrees and or 92 degrees and 95 percent humidity. And so, like, just looking at, you know, we're just pouring sweat all day. I mean, that was sort of our one of the biggest challenges of making the film. But this poor guy was buried in the sands. Um, but it was great. It's so fun because on set, you can see if you got it. You go like, oh, no, we got it. As opposed to like, oh, later on, we'll put the CG in and it, it'll work. Well, I, look, I, uh, I think that one of the things that I love the most about this, uh, and I really uh, feel is, is refreshing, this is not a movie that started as a concept in a, an executive's head or uh, that was then produced by a, a couple of, of guys trying to be funny but trying to be this. You know, this was... Uh, something that started with uh, Kristen and Annie, right? Yeah. They, started it. They, yeah. they, they went at it. They had it made. They executed it with you. There's a partnership there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember when I, when I watch uh, pre-code cinema or the 40s and you see, uh, you know, power figures like uh, Barbara Stanwyck, you know, John Crawford, Betty Davies, It's so necessary to, to it's so refreshing, powerful, and necessary to have uh, these projects gestated by strong, uh, by a strong uh, female point of view mm -hmm. that has 
and that is going to treat the experience differently because I really think this movie is unlike anything. At yeah. the end of the day, you can see the roots, but it's unlike anything. Yeah. And, uh, and then find a partner uh, that is equally uh, insanely committed as you. That is extremely fortunate. I think that uh, uh, if you can talk a, a little bit about them from beginning through the shoot until the end, which is when you guys decide along with Lionsgate to release it digitally. Talk to me a little bit about that partnership. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you just said the word that, you know, fortunate. I mean, I felt very, so unbelievably fortunate to, to be working with Chris and Annie. And like you said, it's such a pure, I think I mentioned earlier in our conversation, I've been reading scripts for years and thinking about what do I want to go for? And it's, you're looking for that thing that's like, it's, it, there's a voice behind it. It's singular in its purpose. It's confident. And I think that's exactly what this was. And they're, and they're, they're, they're just so bold, I think, as storytellers. And, 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 and this film is such an example of it. So I felt for, so fortunate to, to be partnered with them early. We could tell we got along really great from the start, work on the script together on set was such a joy. You know, it was a lot of like just collaboration and, but they also gave me the space, which I think could often not happen, right? With like star writers, you know, they definitely said, you know, it was a joy to sort of surprise them and they show up on set of the musical number. Cause you know, as you know, in a script, it says like a big musical number happens, yeah. you know, and then it's our job to figure out what does that look like? So that the, the kind of trust that we had in one another um, throughout the process, I was so grateful for, especially for my first movie. And then in editing again, it was, you know, they were partners in such a great way, which was we would challenge each other and say, well, I don't know if this is working yet. No, we should cut this. We can't cut this. You know, those kind of conversations are, are fantastic. And, and it was, we often said we were so grateful that no, somehow this film had no assholes on it. <laughs> I don't know. You know, really? yeah. Which is, I think is, you know, from my, even my own, you know, experience in shorts and TV and anything, there's always like, eh, there's always some problem, right? There's always oh, one. one. Yeah, on. there's always one, and we kept there, being there's like, a saying, there's a saying says, if you don't find him after three weeks, it's you. <laughs> That's an amazing expression. I hope it wasn't me. I think what we realized is asshole was our the weather, because it was so, you know, because there is a sense of, by the way, of like, when there is an asshole, it, it, it often can unify the crew and unify everyone else. Well, it's a living, it's a living village. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You need, you need the local. You need, the, it, that's the right. Village, the building, you know? Yeah. But, uh, but you um, know, uh, what you say is this partnership went all the way to the editing and then the release, which is the release. Yeah. So we obviously made the film thinking and knowing it was going to be a big theatrical release, which was thrilling for me, for sure, for everyone. Um, in many ways, it was like, I think comedy has been struggling theatrically prior to the pandemic. And my hope, certainly, and all of our hopes and Lionsgate included was like, if there ever was a shot to kind of like say, no, it's back, we kind of felt like this fun, weird, big swing of a movie could. So when they finally called, obviously the pandemic hit, it was Jul July 16th, 2020 was our planned release date. That got obviously pushed. They immediately pushed it a year because they were just like, let's see. Uh, and then that was going to be till I guess, I can't remember, July, end of July, 2021. And around Christmas time or a little bit earlier, they said, here's our new plan. Um, which as you could imagine, there was a lot of back and forth and, you know, less so by the way, in terms of like, no, 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 we should hold out for theatrical. I think there was a feeling of like, we'd love, you know, I think I, I, we all wanted the film to get out there and for people to be able to see it and experience it. 
So it was more a little bit about the date and the release plan and what PVOD is, you know, premium video on demand and all of that. Um, but it was, you know, it was a conversation and, you know, I, in many ways, I think it was somewhat of a blessing in that I think people, you know, it's, it's maybe pretentious to say like need this or it's the perfect time for this movie or whatever, but I do think it's helping, you know, I think art, and culture and, and what we do can help. I mean, I've, I, I know so many people have gotten through this last year surviving off of some of the things our community has created, you know, be it a, a comedy to just escape to and let go and, and stop sort of stressing about the, the real world for a moment and get a breath, or as you said, an amuse-bouche to, uh, <laughs> to help you get back to the reality. So, um, you know, I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't want it on a big theater and to have that communal experience of sitting there. I got to have it twice. We had two previews before everything got shut down. Um, and it was such a joy. You know, you sit there and when people are, you know, cheering or falling out of their seats from the Edgar's dance or the Morgan Freeman crab, it's like, oh, I love this moment. This is, you know, but However, I'm experiencing it through Twitter, I guess. You know, however, however, the movie became instantly, within hours, a water cooler conversation. Immediately. It was almost instant. And I, I found that fascinating. And uh, I know we have to close. So let me close with saying this. Look, few genres uh, come automatically with a little bit of disrespect. One is fantasy or horror. The other one is... Uh, a, a tear-inducing melodrama, and the, and the last one, I think, is comedy. It is incredibly difficult, particularly in comedy, because often you deal with foolishness, but you need to be incredibly wise to execute that foolishness, and is, a, is what I call smart dumb, you know, and is, is a balance that is extremely difficult to achieve, that requires every technical tool, every narrative tool, fantastic partnership, incredible actors and that comes from a inheriting a tradition that comes from the pratfall in silent cinema to the partners uh through the years from laurel and hardy to super bad to uh musical to everything and it is not invisible to me and to the people that love this movie the effort you guys put into it uh the fantastic creation you did uh the the masterful partnership with Kristen and Annie, which is for the ages for me. I congratulate you. I let you go and uh, we shall go on with our afternoon as everybody else leaves this conversation. Thank you very much, Josh. Thank you so much, Guillermo. It was an honor. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks as we bring you discussions of films from Nisha Ganatra and Heidi Ewing, and for our annual Meet the Nominees series, which will feature panel discussions with this year's DGA Award-nominated directors, Lee Isaac Chung, Emerald Fennell, David Fincher, Aaron Sorkin, and Chloe Zhao. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.